This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. And the book is called The Truth About Lies. The author is here. I got the proper pronunciation. Cena's still here as well. Let me welcome to the show Asia Raiden. Welcome. Hi. Hey. Raiden. Oh, I still messed it up. All right. Raiden. <laughs> Asia Raiden. Raiden. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. All right. So um, you, you did a book uh, before this book. Which I, which is the entry point for me, where you were talking about uh, precious stones and and jewelry and diamonds, and you know I, I read that the diamond is not the most precious of the stones, it's not the most rare, but yet people have died, you know, lost hands and limbs, and uh, you know whole towns have been upended for the pursuit of this thing that we all want because diamonds are a girl's best friend. Tell us the truth about that before we get to the truth about lies. Well, yeah, the truth about diamonds is that. It was an exercise in colonialism. And then the very beginning of modern advertising, a creepy guy named Cecil Rhodes went down to South Africa, ended up with a country named after him, Rhodesia, which I can't believe is still, they're still calling it that because he was a terrible man. And he basically bullied, manipulated, stole, blackmailed all of the other miners at the beginning of the South African diamond rush until he had consolidated a significant majority of the diamond mines in South Africa. And the last couple huge ones, he couldn't get away from a man named Oppenheimer. So they merged and they called their company De Beers. Mm -hmm. And they were doing all right for a little while, but the diamond rush never stopped. You know how the gold rush stopped and the silver rush, the gold, the diamond rush wasn't really a rush. It turns out they're just everywhere. And we get better at mining them every year. And when they realized how many diamonds there were and that they were going to be crushed under this mother load, they did something, I guess, innovative. They lied. They just withheld information from everyone about how many diamonds existed because they controlled the market and how many were being mined. And they just said there are only a few. And they came up with very very almost, well, they're not, they're a cartel. So organized crime style way of selling their diamonds. It's called a site holding. They still do it. Once a year you get invited and you get offered a parcel and that parcel is for you. And you don't get to look at the other parcels and you don't get to shop. You just say yes or no. And they tell you the price and those are the diamonds you can have. Mm -hmm. And that worked pretty well for them for a little while until World War II broke out. And when World War II broke out and the dust settled, everybody who was buying their diamonds in Europe, in Russia, everywhere, they were dead, they were broke, the aristocracy was practically wiped out. There was no more Downton Abbey tea parties with diamond tiaras and shit. I'm sorry. Um, And what happened was all of the money had moved it had moved to the US and was being distributed in this new thing called the middle class that was beginning to exist because of the GI Bill and the New Deal. So they needed to figure out how to sell their diamonds to Americans who did not want them and how to sell them small. They had been selling big diamonds before this. And what they needed to sell were the smaller white ones, which weren't really that valuable even as diamonds go. 
And by smaller, I mean below five carats, and which is pretty big. And so, and they also needed to figure out how to do business in a country that said, don't come here. You're a monopoly. And we still care about antitrust laws right now in that decade. And um, what they did was they hired an advertising agency. And the advertising agency came up with a workaround, which was, you don't do business in the US. We'll invent a product for you. And the product is called the diamond engagement ring. Now, everybody thinks the diamond engagement ring is this timeless tradition. But in fact, it's from approximately the same year as the microwave oven. It was invented by an advertising company to sell Americans diamonds. And it didn't really matter where you bought your diamond, what jewelry store, what company, because all diamonds were De Beers diamonds. And that's how they got around the antitrust laws. So this advertising company basically over a decade invented everything we think of as modern advertising to convince the new American middle class that they wanted diamonds. They indoctrinated children with outreach programs to schools about gemology and diamonds. And they managed to work in there. You're not married if you don't have a diamond ring, you know? And they invented product placement and celebrity endorsements. It's why all of the movies from that post-World War II era, it's hard to find one that doesn't have a diamond in it. Mm. You know, whether it's Breakfast at Tiffany's or Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with the whole diamonds or a girl, there's always diamonds in those movies because they were paying the studios to put the diamonds in the movie and to put them on the celebrities on the red carpet, which we still do. That's still how most jewelry companies get most of their advertising. They loan jewelry to movie stars. Sometimes they give it to them if they're famous enough. And they invented all of this to convince a population that was iffy on engagement rings because they weren't a huge tradition at that point. Some people did them in some places, some people didn't. They were iffy on engagement rings and nobody wanted a diamond engagement ring and definitely not in North America. So it worked so well, they've managed to convince people through the most remarkable multi-decade long, I mean, it's more than advertising at this point, it's almost like a military grade psyop. They've managed to convince everyone that not only do they want a diamond, and diamonds are very rare and very precious, but that they've always wanted a diamond and that this is their own idea, that you didn't hear this from a company. Oh my goodness, Asia. Yeah. Um, so now let's get into the truth about lies. 866-801-8255 is the number. Cena's here, he does a podcast on fraudsters. Now in this book, you uh, talk about a bunch of stuff, you know, and you take us down from the Ponzi schemes to, to uh, shell games, to gold bricking. I am really interested in the charlatans and other authority figures because I feel like America's in the grips right now. This seems to be the space, our sweet spot. Well, there's, there's a few, I mean, I would say that is our, definitely our softest weak spot right now. But it's, it's the softest weak spot on all humans because it, that con works based on emotional need. And while we're also in the grips of hoaxes, and we call it fake news now, but hoaxes and snake oil and Ponzi schemes for sure, 
I was so thrilled with myself for calling out Bitcoin as a pyramid scheme years ago. Um, it's right there in the book. And, um, but yes, the guru con is, is the topic of that particular chapter. And it's definitely, I think, the meanest of these cons because it tends to work disproportionately on dispossessed people, on people who are poor, people who are sick, people who are in need in some way, desperate people. It's, there's a direct correlation to how, how susceptible are you to a guru con based on how good your life right now, you know? And so it's a nasty con. And what it is, is it's a person who manages to convince you. Asia Radin. Uh, is here. The book is called The Truth About Lies. It is stunning. That diamond thing right there, I already knew. The holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day, all this bull crap. I knew it was manufactured and we are suckers. And now the diamond thing, oh, he gave you one knee and all of the story and diamonds are a girl's best friend, all of that bull crap just to get you to go and put money in the pocket of the beers. Huh. Okay, now tell us, Asia, how else we're being snookered by these charlatans. Well, you were asking about the guru con, and that's when anyone, and it can work in a religious model, televangelists are my personal favorite bad one. Uh, it can work in a political model with political leaders. It can work in ways that we think are silly now, like occultism. You know, like going to see a psychic or uh, people actually end up putting out thousands, tens of thousands of dollars before they realize that wasn't real. And what it is, is it's someone who convinces you that essentially I alone can save you. Whatever they claim their trick is, whether it's supernatural, intellectual, uh, a hotline to God, they convince you that this is true. And you become dependent upon them. But the real trick is that the more dependent you become upon them, the more dependent you become upon that dependency. Because you start by believing what they tell you. And they always start slow. You don't start with crazy stuff. They tell you things they can already glean you need to hear, depending on what kind of guru they are. You know, if it's a fake psychic, it's going to be, everything's going to turn out great. No, something good has come. Things you need to hear. If it's a political guru, it's your enemies want you dead, but I'm going to save you. And you're a really good person. And it's okay that you feel the way you do about a whole variety of things that are probably not okay, or you wouldn't be anxious about it. Um, so they tell you that these things are fine or they're gonna be fine and you believe them. And the more entrenched these beliefs become, the more your belief in the guru themselves becomes non-negotiable. It becomes, the idea that that guru is infallible becomes a load bearing belief because later when the guru starts to tell you other things and make other suggestions that are maybe a little bit more objectionable to you or involve money, um, you already have decided to, the guru is infallible. And if they're not, it then kicks the struts out from all those other things that you've previously believed. Like you're a good person. It's okay you did that. Things are gonna be fine for you. You really are very put upon. And 
whatnot. So you okay. can't right. get out so, of it. So we once have you're in it with a guru. 74 million people who don't want to kick the struts out from their beliefs. <laughs> and I, I was saying uh, 2024, barring a certain person being locked away, uh, will win again if they run because they are in they are sold out the 80 million are not sold out they voted to preserve democracy to save their lives but they don't care about biden per se as much as they cared about not having another term of donald trump those 74 million they will vote again that way because they are sold out so what do we do like that yeah yes so what do we do asia what do we do about this Well, I actually think the Biden administration is doing a beautiful job of very quietly, very subtly approaching these cult members, because the worst thing you can do with that, there's, there are different classes of lies and guru belief is a lot like hoax belief. And you can see there's overlap in the people who believe both of them, the people who believe conspiracy theories and hoaxes and they're also very susceptible to guru cons. And it's because these are a class of lies that are designed, all lies are designed to exploit cognitive processes that have loopholes or weak spots in them, just in the way they work. The same way a magic trick exploits a weak spot in your visual cortex. And that's why you see what you see and you go, amazing, lies are supposed to work. You're not dumb if you fell for one, but This class of lie works by exploiting emotional centers in your brain. And the more worked up you get, the further entrenched it becomes as a belief. So then when people try to argue with you and talk you out of it, you get more worked up and it becomes further entrenched as a belief that you have. It's why trying to talk anti-vaxxers into be reasonable doesn't help. They just leave with, you're going to turn into a zombie. And it's like, come on, really? Like we went to college together, you know, that's not true. Um, so with guru cons, I think the Biden administration is doing an amazing job of not confronting them, actually. Not mm. directly saying, this man's a liar. These people are liars. They've lied to you. And instead, presenting them with new things they'd like to believe. It's all going to be okay. We are going to go back to the good old days of American made manufacturing, but you know, without the sexism and the racism and you guys can get on board with that compromise, right? Cause I'm really nice. And I talk in a really soft voice and I like you. We all want to like you come home to uncle Joe. That's what he's doing. Ah, uh, Reverse guru. Yeah. Just <laughs> presenting them with an alternative reality that they can become invested in without ever confronting them about the fake one. Is there any, in any of your research, have you found how long it takes to make that transition from almost one reality to the other? I, you know, you look at um, Jim Baker, you mentioned televangelist. We've covered him on our I show. I talk he's about him of, a lot. Uh, yeah, he's like a classic, right? I mean, he's been doing it for 40 years. Joel Osteen. And at, Joel Osteen, they're all the, you know, the prosperity gospel is this thing, but you get it ingrained in your mind. And once you're, we say, once you're on the ride, you're on the ride for life. What does it take or how long does it take to kind of get you off that ride? It depends on the individual, depends on their level of commitment. Um, It depends on a lot of things, actually, because lies work on healthy, functioning, normal brains. They're designed to. They're an evolutionary adaptation like camouflage or teeth. 
because they work, if you work, it's actually much easier to lie to a crazy person and have them abandon their previous lie than a person who's not crazy. So, you know, we might have that going for us. Um, no, but, but realistically, uh, 74 million people aren't crazy. They've been conned, a lot of them. Yeah. And I think how long it takes depends on how well you very gently waltz them in circles until they realize they're in another room. And I think it's being, <laughs> like that. Well, it's being done pretty masterfully yeah. right now, you know, but the more the rest of us scream at them and scream liar, treason, the more entrenched they're going to become in their okay. beliefs. Yeah. Thank you Absolutely. for that. Cause, uh, yep. whoo, you, you're, yeah. Okay. So tell me how you got into this lie business, Asia. <laughs> <laughs> how did you get in? I'm a lifetime criminal. No, I'm just kidding. Um, my previous Wait book, Stone. Okay. <laughs> was about the jewelry industry because I started out in um, the jewelry industry. I, I worked for many years in many aspects of it, from gem trading to diamond grading to being a reasonably successful, recognized jewelry designer. And um, so I, I wrote this book about these individual pieces of jewelry or treasure and how they served as pivot points in human history. And one of them was the first diamond engagement ring, for example. And um, I was gonna write a more direct follow-up to that book, but I found myself in the last few years distracted by the very sharp turn the whole world seemed to have taken into what the fuck, you know? <laughs> and. And since the first book was ostensibly about why people want what they want, why do they value what they value? Why are things worth what they're worth? This seemed like a sort of a natural extension because really people assume when they see the cover that it's about lies, but what it's about is why people believe what they believe. Okay, so during the break, cause you dropped a little Bitcoin thing out there, a little cryptocurrency out, and I was like, wait a minute. Hold up. Wait a minute. I was just watching. I'm like, if Bitcoin drops below 50,000, because I remember sitting on my couch when it was at 36,000, I was like, oh, it's going to drop to 34,000. I'm jumping in. And then it shot up to 55, 56, 57. And now it's coming back down a little bit. I was like, I think I'm getting back in. And you were like, up, oh, scam. Please, please explain yourself. <laughs> Okay, so before I, I dump my life savings chapter into crypto. <laughs> in this book on pyramid scams and how they work. And the more controversial thing I say, just to put your mind at ease to start, more controversial thing I have to say about pyramid scams is that they do work. They're actually a very viable business model momentarily. There's, there's a period of time in which you do make money. The problem is, every time you add a tier to the pyramid, because really you're just shuffling money up. This is a business that makes nothing, that does nothing, that produces nothing, helps no one. And in the case of Bitcoin, the currency isn't even tangible, right? And that's another thing we need to think about. Bitcoin isn't currency. It's and part of the reason it took a nosedive yesterday was because Elon Musk said, no, I can change my mind. You can't buy Teslas with Bitcoin. Well, do you know what else you can't buy with Bitcoin? Anything. You can't buy anything with Bitcoin because it's, <laughs> it's not money. It's not currency and not because it's digital. 
when you use your credit card, you're using digital money. When, not because it's decentralized. If I paid for something in gold coins, that would be decentralized. It's not money because it's not meant to be spent. It's meant to be hoarded. The value over time only goes up to a certain point. And that's why it's pyramid scheme. Because over time, there will be fewer and fewer less and less accessible Bitcoins. And it's gonna turn out a very small number of people own almost all of them. And they're worth trillions of dollars because the rest of us agreed to it. And that's exactly how any pyramid scheme works, whether it's Herbalife or it's Bernie Madoff, or it's just, you know, Mary Kay. It, when Oh, money, wait a minute. <laughs> now you've gone like, too far, Asian. That was just playing. Well, Go ahead. Continue. I think, yeah. I, but I think just to build on that, I think one of the things that we're, and people talk so much about Bitcoin all the time. I really think about this is like, we're making it like in the early days of the internet when it's as if everyone was talking about MySpace and being the biggest thing. Bitcoin is pretty much MySpace. We're probably not going to be talking about Bitcoin well, as much I anymore, mean, but, but, but there will be a Facebook that comes up. There will be a Twitter that comes up. This is a, not necessarily about Bitcoin, right? It, there's a broader thing that's happening here. Bitcoin is just a, a thing that everyone has attached onto. And it's like this thing that keeps spiking up and that people keep giving their money to. However, people, but, sorry, but, money, but money is also uh, not a real thing. The oh, money, yeah. it's all based on our agreement Absolutely. and our faith in it. It's not backed by anything. That's in it's chapter paper. eight. <laughs> yeah. So what's the difference between cryptocurrency and our dollar, which is backed by nothing? If I went to Starbucks and tried to spend a $20 bill and they said, we're not going to take this, who would I see about that? Yeah, you could go to the government. The U.S. Treasury. Yes. Yeah. I would say, what's wrong with my $20 bill? I accepted this and I was promised it was worth $20. It's a fungible. You've heard of non-fungible tokens? Yes. Yeah. Well, money, U.S. dollars are completely fungible. It means they are all the same and you can trade them for each other. You can trade them for other things. And there's a promise. They really are a promissory note. Mm -hmm. There's a promise backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. government. So if somebody won't take my 20, that's who I see about it. Now, if I go to Starbucks and try to buy Starbucks with a Bitcoin, they're definitely going to say no. But who do I see about that? The Wake of Us brothers? Yeah, I think you could call them. You could text them, maybe yeah. DM them on Facebook. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Not on difficult. Facebook. I see what you're Yeah, <laughs> nobody's <laughs> made a promise to you of any kind that your Bitcoin's actually worth anything. And that's another thing about pyramid schemes. People get caught up in how rapidly they're growing and how much money, in this case, how fast it's rising. And they never do two things. One is take a careful look at, was I promised anything? And who promised it to me? Because you weren't. That's the telltale sign of a pyramid scheme. And the other is, is simply math. Nobody does the math. If you start with a pyramid, I'm trying to remember these numbers, basically you need one person and then because you're just moving their money upward in a pyramid, 
the simplest example is a Ponzi scheme. You take investors, and then when they want their interest, you take a new bigger row of investors, and you just use their money to pay the interest on the first ones, and again and again. By the time you get to the fifth row, you would need more people than you could ever possibly get. By the time you get to the 25th row, you would need more people than are on earth. It's the same principle by which if you fold a piece of paper in half, I think it's 14 times, it would reach the moon. That's just how exponents work. There is no way for a pyramid not to collapse. So how long do we have before Bitcoin collapses? Because I know a lot of people who are in it, so I need them to get out before. (laughs) So Well, now would be a bad time to get out because in this case, it's not just it's not just a pure pyramid. It's a pyramid that's being dicked around with by market manipulators. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase pump and dump. Yeah, well, yes, and many different references to different things, but yes, I have. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, in, In the case of investments like Bitcoin, pump and dump means you buy a lot of it and then you do something to artificially inflate its value, particularly by getting other people excited about it. If, say, you're a wildly famous tech titan, you get on Saturday Night Live and won't shut up about cryptocurrency. You tell everyone for months that this is the future. I have tons of it. I've invested all my money in it. You tell people, no, it's real money. You can buy a car with it. And then when price gets high enough, you sell it. And then you tell everybody, nah, you can't buy a car with it. It's a, it's a hustle and the price plummets. At which point, if you wanna go for a second dip, when the price plummets, you buy more and do it a second time. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> okay. Um, I, I think I've gotten my fill on this Thursday, this Thrive Thursday. You are amazing. Uh, you're a great storyteller too. Um, your book is also amazing, The Truth About Lies. And I appreciate you. I hope uh, we get off the diamond teeth. I hope we get off, uh, not yet, the cryptocurrency. Tweet. So so we have to wait for it to drop, get in low, because they're going on a second ride. When it goes back up, get out. They're probably going on a second ride. When it goes back up, get out. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. You are, you're, you're, you're really valuable. I appreciate you. Appreciate Thank you, you so immensely. much. Yes. Asia Radin. Uh, R-A-D-E-N. Follow her. We tweeted out her information. The book is The Truth About Lies. Get that. 